I'm George Boracki. Cityscape is taking the week off so we can bring you a conversation as part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign focused on sustainability issues in New York City. We'll return next week at this time. Have a great weekend. Hello, my name is George Boldarki. I'm the news director of NPR affiliate station WFUV, located on the Rose Hill campus of Fordham University here in the Bronx. Each quarter, WFUV works to raise awareness of a particular issue through our Strike Accord campaign. Past campaigns have focused on everything from healthy aging to autism acceptance to children in foster care. We're very pleased to be teaming up with BronxNet for our latest campaign focused on sustainability. New York City is taking several steps to reduce its carbon footprint, including proposals to retrofit buildings and to make more use of renewable energy. Our guest today is on the front lines of those efforts. Mark Chambers is director of the Mayor's Office of Sustainability. Mark, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. So what are the key principles of sustainability? Well, it depends on how you look at it. But I would say that for the most part, the conventional principles revolve around energy, revolve around waste, and revolve around you know, changing our built environment in a way that uh, not only reduces our kind of dependency on some of the, the causes of the climate crisis, but also uh, positions us to be able to thrive. You know, I often say that um, fighting climate change is not about uh, protecting our way of life. It's about changing the way we live. And so sustainability has a lot to do with being able to put in strong measures um, policies and programs that help support that and help you know, propel us forward in a way that's less carbon intensive so that we can really kind of peel back some of the, uh, the problems that we're seeing now. How much was Superstorm Sandy a few years ago a wake-up call for what you do in terms of improving sustainability? Absolutely. I, I think that New Yorkers have Sandy in their recent memory. And being able to understand the um, prevalence of stronger storms, you know, especially for coastal cities, what that looks like and how um, we, uh, a lot of U.S. cities are also experiencing extreme heat, experiencing flooding. Uh, the wake-up call is something that allows for uh, us to recenter, refocus, and hopefully protect ourselves so that we are not experiencing the worst outcomes of those, but also redirecting our attention to make sure we are actively changing our behavior and actively pursuing, uh, you know, um, measures that are really reducing, you know, um, our reliance on fossil fuels. Yeah, as I mentioned at the top of the show, New York City is taking several steps to reduce its carbon footprint. What would you say are the initiatives at the heart of that? Absolutely. And New York has been the spear tip of this effort for quite some time. Uh, We look at the work we do here, not just within the five boroughs, but uh, extending beyond that. You know, we are able to lead other cities to be able to to mimic a lot of the work we're doing. Uh, Most recently, Uh, We worked with City Council to pass the uh, Climate Mobilization Act, which is a series of uh, really progressive efforts to um, change the way in which we're operating in New York City. Um, One of the most fundamental anchors of that was uh, a building performance mandate, which basically says for large buildings in New York City, buildings over 25,000 square feet, uh, there is going to be a cap on the amount of emissions that those buildings could be responsible for. And the emissions are really the energy it takes to heat and cool those buildings, because that energy is responsible for the lion's share of of emissions uh, in our city. Across the board in New York City, buildings are responsible for about 70% of our greenhouse gas emissions. So it has to be at the core of any responsible and thoughtful climate response. So getting at the buildings, changing how we are heating them and keeping them cool uh, is 
a not just the first big step, but it's a, it's a giant step for other cities to follow. I know that we are, of course, a city of buildings. There's probably, what, a million plus buildings? There's a little buildings? over a million buildings, actually, yes. <laughs> are people still surprised, though, to learn that buildings are the largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, it's actually something that is, is a common occurrence, a common uh, kind of conversation we have, that people don't really think about buildings in that kind of way. You know, we have an intimate relationship with buildings. We wake up in them, we go to school in them, we go to work in them. Um, but we don't think about the buildings as having a, you know, a persona, like a role to play in our cities. And so uh, when we have these conversations with New Yorkers, uh, it's important for us to demystify uh, that part about buildings and to make sure people understand that you know, all of the components that allow for you to, to thrive or allow for you to be a part of this city, it happens and plays itself out in buildings. And so we have to take that seriously, but we also have to give New Yorkers very clear indication as to what they can do to make those buildings have less of an impact. So what are those steps? What can they do? Well, it, it, there's a lot. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think there are day-to-day components, and then there's kind of larger um, uh, aspects. So with buildings, big buildings in particular, um, what you're trying to do is to make sure you're looking at first like where you are uh, burning fuel on site. So that's the boilers, things that are, that are keeping the, the hot water on, keeping the, the building uh, warm, um, and being able to look at ways to retrofit those, make them operate better, upgrade them. A lot of these are antiquated and could benefit from, um, from being uh, retuned and the distribution of those pipes throughout the building. It's windows, making sure they are functioning well, making sure they're insulating well. It's roofs, making sure the roofs are also performing well. Uh, all of these components that you would think about just a well-operating building, you know, thermostats that work and thermostats that um, make sure the building is not uh, being kept too cool when there are people are not there or too warm when they're not there, all of those, those uh, uh, commonplace items we have to have those moving uh, across the city, across all buildings. And so those are some of the kind of early measures. I mean, one of the things to keep in mind, though, is that everyone benefits from better buildings. You know, I think when we think about retrofitting these buildings, we just think about, you know, um, spending money, making sure that the buildings are operating better. But once they're operating better, they're costing less money to operate. So you have tenants that are happier because their, their buildings are are more comfortable, and you have owners that are spending less money to operate their buildings. So we just want to make sure that we are doing that on an expedited time frame because time is not something we have a lot of when it comes to really changing our behavior to um, reduce quickly our emissions. A common complaint if you live mm-hmm. in a New York City apartment in the winter is that it's so hot I have Absolutely. to open the window. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, we want to get away from that. And I think part of that is making sure the systems are functioning the way in which they were intended. And that means that buildings um, that have those kind of problems, it can be retuned and they can be functioning better. And we know that that's going to make for happier tenants, but we also know it's going to make for more efficient buildings. But if you're a landlord or a building owner and you're hearing this, you might be a little jittery. This is going to cost us money. Mm-hmm. So what is the city doing to help landlords, building owners meet these requirements? Absolutely. So, I mean, again, first up, keep uh, as I mentioned before, uh, these are efforts that have paybacks. So you, your building operates better, you, um, your investment gets paid back. Uh, but one of the uh, key ways in which the city and the city council has kind of pushed to make sure that building owners uh, will be able to 
to have the upfront capital to be able to invest is by passing um, a PACE uh, financing bill. Uh, PACE stands for Property Assessed Clean Energy. And what it means is that a building owner could take out a PACE loan, which is a long-term low-interest loan, and a typical loan might be, let's say, like seven years or so. PACE loans are actually determined, the length of it, are determined based on what you're doing. So if it takes you 10 years to pay back the investment of changing your windows, that's how long the PACE loan is. And another part of this is that it gets paid back through your property taxes. So owners then will have a, an, you know, a line item that are, that's on their, their property tax bill that gets paid back over the, that time frame. It also stays with the property. So if you transfer the property to someone else, that investment that went in there then gets transferred over and it, and it stays with the property. So it's a great way for owners to not have to have the upfront capital, but to be able to make the necessary changes. So we're talking about retrofitting here, mm-hmm. but what about building from scratch? There was right. a recent headline mm-hmm. that I think caused some confusion. Mm-hmm. Mayor de Blasio is banning glass buildings in New York City. Yep. Right. So couple things with new buildings. Um, new buildings, in my opinion, I'm an architect, and so I, 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 I feel like I can, I can say this. New buildings are a little bit easier. <laughs> you know, like when you're, when you're doing a new building, you have the benefit of, um, of using uh, the kind of best decision-making from the beginning, right? And, and putting time into planning and design in a way that allows you to design low-energy buildings, we also have taken very significant care and effort to recraft codes in New York City, energy code, building code, zoning code, to make sure that all of these are pushing new buildings to be able to have very significant thresholds for their design so that they're performing better. So as far as new buildings are concerned, we're excited because it, we've put the work in to make sure that new building owners are, are doing uh, a lot of the best that they can. Now, when it comes to glass, though, glass is a very interesting component because, um, in general, glass, uh, its thermal performance is typically less than a larger thermal mass. So if you have a, um, you know, if you have a large kind of, um, I, I use terms like thermal mass, but what it really means is if you have a well-insulated kind of thicker wall, it performs better thermally. It keeps things on the inside cold when they're cold. It keeps things on the inside hot when they're supposed to be hot. And it uses less energy to do that. Um, Glass is, does not have as great a performance uh, when it comes to that. Um, while there's been a lot of strides made forward in glass, uh, the, one of the concerns that came about for the glass building ban and, and the, the conversation was glass buildings that are all glass, floor to ceiling, curtain walls as we call them, uh, inherently they are kind of working against themselves. Uh, it takes much better attuned, uh, operated, and kind of robust systems to keep a building like that um, cool or keep the building like that hot because of all the solar thermal gain that comes in. The sun is coming in from the outside. It means you have to have more air conditioning capacity on the inside to keep it cool. Things like that. So what the glass building ban was really speaking towards was saying that we have for a long time been building buildings in the same way. These floor to ceiling curtain wall buildings, all glass, and we can do better. Yeah, we can design buildings, which we're seeing now across the board, not just in some places in New York City, but in cities all around, that is transitioning to better what we call glass and mass ratios, where buildings are beautiful buildings, amazing spaces from the inside, and still have abundant natural lighting, but are also taking advantage of other materials other than just glass. And so getting us out of our own way and being able to speak to a better um, consistency of design that uses 
um, better performing materials, mixing in with glass, mixing in with um, uh, larger thermal capacities. It's how we build better buildings that function better and that are better to operate and better for people inside. Are there existing buildings in New York City right now that are models for sustainability that you can point to? Sure. Uh, gosh, you know, um, I think that uh, a lot of times it depends on what we're, um, what we are, the type of building we're talking about. But the, um, the Cornell um, campus, um, I think, is something that we we speak to a lot um, about. Uh, what we call kind of passive house design or, or low um, low energy design, which I think is uh, where buildings can be beautiful but also be um, be high performing. Um, I think that's a, a great example. But there are lots of examples, um, whether they are residential buildings or even some uh, kind of larger buildings that um, are embracing these techniques in one way or another, you know, using innovative solutions on the inside to also allow for pieces of their building to function much better. You mentioned rooftops earlier mm-hmm. and making sure rooftops are doing a good job to mm-hmm. help this effort. What can we look to do on rooftops? Because we have so many of them yes. here in New York City <laughs> to make sure they are doing a good job for us in terms of helping to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Absolutely. So rooftops are, are great spaces. I mean, in New York City, um, you know, rooftops are often kind of coveted space. And so you, a lot of times you have large buildings with not as... Um, bigger footprint. And so the rooftops usually have mechanical equipment and so forth, um, which is important for the building to operate. But rooftops can contribute so much towards um, protecting our city, you know, in aggregate. So we talk a lot about heat island, which means that across the board for the city, because there are a lot of dark surfaces, whether they're roads or rooftops, uh, sun hits that, makes the building a little bit warmer. Overall, it raises the temperature of cities. So we want to avoid that. And the way you avoid that is either by absorbing that uh, differently with vegetated roofs, so green roofs, or reflecting it with cool roofs, which are white, kind of high-reflectant roofs. So being able to do that in a way that takes advantage of those spaces is a huge way in which we can uh, allow for buildings to um, kind of do their part. Another way is by looking at um, uh, performance around solar and making sure that these buildings are taking advantage of some of that rooftop space to be able to provide for on-site uh, energy generation. You know, part of the climate mobilization bills that we, we worked with council to pass uh, included a, a solar and green roof bill, which means that every new building in New York City will have either solar or a green roof built into the, the building. Uh, that goes back to what I was saying about the benefit of new buildings. You can use the code, use our legislation to be able to enable them to uh, to work towards the benefit of all New Yorkers. So besides solar, what other types of energy, clean energy, are you pursuing here in New York? Well, I think it's important to understand that New York City is a very large um, energy user. You know, we, again, largest city in the, in the country, uh, we have a lot of energy needs. And so uh, some of those needs can be met, you know, as we talked about with in-city generation, but most of it needs to come from outside of the city. Um, and I think we... Uh, we also want to be able to effectively begin to turn off in-city generation that are some of the uh, the larger, um, dirtier power plants in the city. Um, so we also have a rule that says that New York City has to be able to maintain within the city about 80% of its capacity or its need. So those are the kind of governing rules. In order to be able to make sure that, that is becoming cleaner, we have to basically say we are going to seek that that low low carbon energy elsewhere and bring it in directly into the city. So that means offshore wind, that means upstate renewables, and uh, in recent uh, 
um, kind of news we've talked a lot about going a little bit further and, uh, and seeking Canadian hydropower and directly connecting that into New York City. All of those are necessary for us to be able to um, clean our grid and to be able to move towards a, a carbon neutral future. So we're very excited about doing that. It also, you know, I, I think about it a lot the way um, I think New York thought about its, um, its water usage, you know, over 100 years ago. You know, and you know, of course, 100 years ago, you probably wouldn't want to go and, um, you know, take a, you know, take a drink from the Hudson. Uh, and so, uh, you know, back then the conventional wisdom was let's begin to look for clean sources of water, you know, way upstate, bring, you know, large aqueducts down to make sure that New Yorkers were getting the clean water that they needed. And as a city that was growing at that time, uh, that was critical to our kind of future. And it's the same thing goes for renewables and for clean energy. We need to be able to look at those conduits where we can bring them in um, and we also need to look at the way in which they get here. You know, transmission is a huge part of this. And right now, a lot of the new renewables can't get to the city because the highways that bring them down are, are congested. <laughs> and so for us, we're looking at ways now to say we want um, clean energy. We want that energy to come directly into New York City. And we want that energy to help us shut down in-city generation clean up our kind of local air as goes along with that and benefit um, health-wise from having a much better system of bringing in uh, clean energy and having less of these in-city generations turning on. We want them to turn off as much as possible. So there might (laughs) be a time where we will not have power plants within the five boroughs? I believe so. And I believe that that is how we need to be planning and how we need to be advocating for our uh, clean energy future. I know that you have said if you want a lesson in sustainability, go to Governor's Island. What can Governor's Island teach us about sustainability, the island off of Manhattan? Sure. So, uh, you know, at, at that time when we were speaking about Governor's Island, one of the things that I was trying to get across in that, that conversation was it's always good to have places where you get a few bites of the apple of a conversation. Uh, one of the things I liked about Governor's Island and, and was being able to have multiple ways and inroads for people to understand the larger work of sustainability. Uh, I think I was talking about the Billion Oyster Project as being one way in which New Yorkers can kind of connect with the health of the oceans and how that impacts the, you know, their own personal health. That's a conversation that lets you have an inroad to a conversation about our food systems. How are we looking at uh, the intensity of our food systems, both from a um, the resources that go into it, as well as the impact, you know? So you start to have conversations about that. Then you start to have conversations about the impact of plastics. You know, first having conversations like, what are we doing to move us away from both single-use plastics as well as um, plastics that are fundamentally based from kind of virgin oil? All of those start to, to fi- find different ways in which New Yorkers can, can relate. And so Governor's Island, I think, was a, was a great example of being able to hit a few a few things at, at once, um, as well as it you know, kind of gives you a good vantage to be able to, uh, I think, have a kind of contemplative reflection back at the city. Uh, there are tons of other places in, in New York City that also um, uh, kind of really kind of showcase um, great, great efforts and, and great movement forward, uh, but I think that's always a, a fun one to, uh, to be able to participate in. Let's talk about single-use plastics yeah. for a moment. Single-use plastic bags are on their way out Absolutely. in New York City. This is a big deal for you. I know this is a very important issue yes. for you. This is uh, fundamental to any um, behavior change strategy 
And to be honest, it's something that, you know, we would have liked to have seen a long time ago. You know, um, the, you know, we passed a kind of local law around um, uh, single-use plastic bags several years ago. Um, now that we have gotten the assistance from, uh, from the state, we're able to kind of really advance this uh, quickly. What this is, means is that you're going to have this constant reminder and this constant effort about decision-making. And, you know, when you leave your house, you're going to grab your reusable bag. We have a program called Bring It, which is basically built around that. Uh, you're going to grab your reusable bottle, and you're going to go on living your life. And it's, I think that people have gotten very used to the convenience of plastic bags, but, but none of us are used to the consequences. And so what I'm excited about is the conversation going away because it's not a thing that we should need to be doing anymore. You know, we don't need to be taking plastic bags um, every time. We don't need to be overly using um, plastic straws. Uh, I do believe that straws have a place. Um, uh, we've been working very strong with the um, with uh, kind of the accessibility community to make sure that those that really need straws um, can have access to them. But it's also, for the most part, you don't need them. And so I think being able to do that, look at alternatives, uh, silverware, the same thing applies. We're in a place now where it's it's 2019. Like, we can do better. And so I think that New Yorkers um, will quickly... Uh, adapt, and I think that many cities around the the country and the world have done this long time ago. So we can do this. What about charging five cents for paper bags? Mm-hmm. So again, we have to we have to play catch up, right? And playing catch up means that it's re- about reusable bags. It's not about um, you know what we call planned obsolescence, which is like the idea that something that you get is immediately of no more use to you, right? Uh, we can take a bag the same way we would use a paper bag or plastic bag, a reusable bag, canvas bag or other, and use it over and over again. So I think that part of what we are doing is saying, yes, plastic bags are particularly pernicious and particularly bad. Paper bags are also fruit from the same tree. We need to be using reusable bags consistently, and I think that um, we can quickly adapt and quickly catch up to uh, the rest of the, the world that is moving away from it. So you think we will be charging five cents? You think the city will move forward with well, that? Well, I, I mean, I think, I think time will tell what, what, ends up, um, what ends up happening. I think the implementation uh, going forward uh, next year of the bag ban will kind of uh, see how we kind of adapt and, and, and move quickly. But I think that the, fastest, the faster we can move to a place where we are not using paper bags or plastic bags is better for New York. So besides not using single-use plastic bags, what other steps can New Yorkers take to help your efforts in making the city more sustainable? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I, again, I work on behalf of, of you know, the 8.6 million New Yorkers that want a, a future free of carbon, right? Uh, a future that's also free of, whether it's extreme heat or whether it is, um, we talked about superstorms, uh, you know, all of these components go into and it, Speaking kind of frankly also, it's those, those are the same New Yorkers that want a freedom away from, you know, the social and kind of racial inequalities that make the, the truth of the climate crisis inconvenient for some, but very deadly for others. And so I think that we are, we are in a place now where people want to be able to make uh, the changes that they, they can make. And I think the, the best ways for individuals to start to think about that is to start to think about their consumption. What are they kind of consuming on a day-to-day basis that they can um, shift slightly to be able to 
have a, a larger kind of aggregated impact. And that may be about their reusable bags, may be about their reusable bottles. Uh, we did a program where we handed out reusable bottles as part of the Bring It program to every single New York City public high school student. So within a few days, we handed out 320,000 uh, of these reusable bottles, water bottles. Um, New Yorkers can also look at their, um, their consumption of meats. You know, I think that uh, moving in a way in which we are slowly starting to kind of shift away from a meat-intensive diet is something that will have a gigantic impact on our emissions. City schools are moving to Meatless Mondays, Absolutely. right? Absolutely, yeah. Meatless Mondays across the board, which is fantastic. And I think and, uh, you know, city government is also looking at uh, reducing its purchasing of, uh, of red meat. And we are, we're moving in a place where no one is saying that all options are kind of like being, being taken away. It's like what we're doing is that let's make responsible decisions, let's look at the impact, and let's be able to make really uh, strong collective decisions that prioritize our climate, prioritize the ability for everyone to thrive here in New York, and also you know, take this climate crisis seriously. You know, it, is, it is very aggressive, and it's further along than a lot of, a lot of people give it credit for. And, and to the extent that we can be proactive, but also, um, you know, activated. Like, I, I, I think we're in a place now where we need activists. You know, we need New Yorkers to, yes, change your behavior, but you have to be, you have to say that, like, I want to be a part of this, and I want to be an activist that is saying that this matters to me, and I am going to talk about it, I'm going to ask questions about it, I'm going to make sure that I am doing my research, and I'm going to do my part and cha- to kind of hold everyone else accountable for that as well. Soon enough, we'll be paying more to drive into Manhattan with congestion mm-hmm. pricing. Is that more of a transportation issue or also an environmental issue? So I think that we have to stop compartmentalizing anything related to the, the climate crisis. You know, it affects every part of the way we live. So whether it is transportation, whether it is strictly about greenhouse gases, whether it's just about you know, um, shifting away from, you know, the internal combustion engine. Like, all of these things are now intertwined. So I think that as we move forward with congestion pricing, what we're going to see is uh, it's not just about making it, you know, more pricey to come into the city. It's about engendering a shift where we're no longer kind of relying on the kind of norm of, of movement. You know, you should be able to, you know, take whatever means of transit best suits your task, you know, and to be able to do that, we also want more vehicles that are shared. We want vehicles that are, that are electric. And so as we start to kind of move into a place where people are, um, the options are cleaner transportation, the options are shared transportation that are more efficient, uh, that will also impact um, the, the role of congestion pricing. You know, I think that also speaks to um, um, efforts, uh, you know, by the the state to um, to work on the on MTA and work on the on the subway system. That's also a key component of making sure that congestion pricing has its role, but it's not the only solution. And so, I want to see a place where New Yorkers can kind of freely move in a way that is um, is cost effective, but also um, relies on an electrified, clean energy based uh, transportation, you know, and we can kind of uh, move away from this car-intensive culture. It also lets us get back some of these streetscapes. I mean, I, I'm a person that thinks a lot about, you know, what would this road be like without cars, period? Mm. And how do we have a conversation there about what 
what opportunities open for, for New Yorkers when we reclaim some of those street spaces for people. Um, and I think that's, that's a conversation that a lot of um, kind of cities around the globe have started to really wrestle with. I was going to ask yeah. you that question, whether you have any overseas role models. Yeah, <laughs> so we do. I mean, and we're, we are in constant communication with, um, with global cities that are also leading the charge on this. You know, we, we're, we are part of something that's called the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance, which kind of takes some of the top cities that are really doing the, uh, the best they can to reduce, um, to reduce their impact and be innovative around it. And uh, where it comes to role models, you know, you pull little pieces from everybody, right? That's one of the benefit. You know, we can look at how London has done their congestion pricing and learn from it and make changes so that we are not having any of the same problems that they may have had in, in, in early implementation or in kind of management. Um, and we're looking at the successes that they have had and other people have had with reducing um, the impact of cars. You can look at the, the super blocks where they kind of have started to change um, how... You know, we had these kind of cross-cutting, you know, car networks, you know, in, in some, um, some other European cities. And they've now said, look, let's create these super blocks, make them pedestrian zones on the inside. You can still kind of circumambulate in, in vehicles, but we're going to give, you know, some of these streets back to people and then see what happens. And I think that what happens is that people fill those spaces and they start to be able to kind of like improve a lot of their economic output. They improve the quality of life. And for us, it reduces the intensity, the carbon intensity of, um, of a culture built around cars. All right, Mark, we're going to have to leave it okay. there. Thank you so much. That's all the time we have for the special collaboration between public radio station WFUV and BronxNet, focusing on sustainability. I want to thank our guest, Mark Chambers, thank director you. of the New York City Mayor's Office of Sustainability. If you would like to find out more about his office and its doings, check them out online, nyc.gov sustainability. For more information about WFUV's Strike Accord campaign, visit wfuv.org slash strike accord. I'm George Bodarki. Thanks so much for being with us.